0: We're going to be looking tonight at a message I call Identify, Identify. Uh, This was a message, as I told you this morning, uh, that uh, I shared at the uh, Defenders Conference at the Victory Baptist Church in Sherwood yesterday. We had uh, uh, between 150 and 200 there, about half and half between uh, students and adults, it was, uh, it was good to see them. We were talking about the truth and what is truth. And uh, kind of an apologetics type conference. Uh, it's not teaching people how to argue. That's what you think of when you think about a- apologetics. No, we're not teaching people how to argue. Uh, we're pe- teaching people how to know what they believe. And then how to defend it. And it's built on that responsibility we have from the New Testament that tells us to be always ready to give an answer to him that ask you the reason for the hope that is within you, uh, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be put on the spot and ask a question that I can't answer. I like to be ready ahead of time, and that doesn't mean that I can't always uh, anticipate every question and get the answer. Uh, but it does mean that we can be well prepared, and knowing what we believe and why is important to us. What we understand then and what we believe about identity and how it can be determined is rooted in our understanding of Scripture. And we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 with one verse. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I want to draw your attention to those two expressions, in Adam, in Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Identity. We begin tonight with the broadest sense of identity. And that speaks of our humanity, our common existence as humans. Nine billion of us and counting. It was 1804, in case any of you were wondering, as far as we know, they tell us, whoever they are, 1804, the first time that our planet had a billion people on it, 1804. Basically a couple of hundred years later, and you see what's happened. Uh, Things are escalating rapidly, rapidly, nine billion and counting. And so when we're going to talk about humanity and speak of how that is, we're going to have to paint with some broad strokes and thankfully the Bible does that and that's why I bring to you this passage because all of humanity can be described in those two expressions. All of humanity, according to the Bible, is either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam or in Christ. Now... We could consider, I know, possibly humanity in a lot of different ways. We could consider humanity ethnically or racially. We could consider humanity economically. We hear a lot about that today, the privileged or the oppressed or somewhere in between. We could consider humanity biologically. I had a quote from uh, a a scientific uh, journal that I pulled out exactly for tonight, Modern Humans, Homo sapiens, are the only extant members of the hominin clade, a branch of great apes, a branch of great apes characterized by erect posture and bipedal locomotion, manual dexterity and increased tool use, and a general trend toward larger, more complex brains and societies, end quote. Humanity is a, a, a species of great apes, the last one, apparently. Now, I promise you, if you believe that, if anybody believes that, then your concept of identity is going to be affected by that. Do you understand what I'm saying? But if we consider the issue theologically or biblically, then we come to these expressions in Adam or in Christ. It's important that we remember there was a time biblically when the Bible used a much more visible expression. You were either Jewish or you were Gentiles. That speaks of the Jews and everyone who isn't Jewish. It's an important biblical truth that's crucial to our understanding of our identity in Christ. And so we'll take a few moments to look at this tonight. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, a lengthy passage. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh of hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being alien, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, there it is. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made both, both what? Both the Jew and the Gentile. He has made both one and broken down that middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and that He might reconcile both Jew and Gentile in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. You see, this hostility, this division in humanity, whether it was created by God's own law when He divided the world into the Jews and everyone who wasn't Jewish, the Jew and the Gentile, the descendants of Abraham physically, marked by the physical ritual of circumcision so that uh, a boy in his eighth day of life uh, would be circumcised as a testament to his participation in the Abrahamic covenant. Then there was everybody else, the uncircumcised as Paul describes them in this passage. It didn't mean though that those people who were not Jewish were left out and they could never be saved. That wasn't the teaching of the Old Testament. Jonah's mission to Nineveh is more than enough to prove that. We've got examples like Ruth and Rahab. Jesus, as we've seen in our uh, consideration of the gospel of Mark, made many, many forays into Gentile territory, preaching to them the gospel. We've seen many of those Gentiles, like the demoniac at Gadara, and on and on and on it goes who came to believe on Jesus Christ. It wasn't that Gentiles could not be saved. They could be. But Paul describes them in Ephesians chapter 2 as being without hope and without God in the world, and that is a practical effect of his audience. The reason why the Gentiles were without hope and without God in the world is because Israel, God's representative, was lost. Israel had embraced a false religion. Israel was the blind leading the blind. The hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles went both ways. The Jews wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. The Gentiles wouldn't have anything to do with the Jews. And that left them outside the sphere of the covenants. They were without God, without hope in the world. Paul would find many of the Greeks, though, who were involved in synagogue worship as he traveled around. They were maybe excluded, maybe left on the outside, but they had heard of Israel's God, and they readily ex- embraced the truth that he describes in Ephesians 2. The important thing for us tonight is that the G- Jesus abolished that enmity between the Jew and the Gentile. And he created and established a means by which all people could be one through our union with Christ. In Christ. Add in Galatians 3.26, another important passage. Uh, for you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is not water baptism in this passage. You notice the passage does not say baptized into water, but baptized into Christ. And when that happened, you were put or you put on Christ. Uh, There's a great Baptist theologian by the name of James Boyce who described the meaning of baptizo and contrasted it with another Greek word that's often used in the New Testament called babto. We usually join those two together, but actually there's a distinction. The word babto meant to dip something in and pull it out, where the word baptizo has to do with something that is put in and left in. And the distinction was illustrated by a recipe of all things from a physician that they had found in 200 B.C., for making pickles, I thought some of y'all here tonight. I didn't use this yesterday, but I thought y'all might identify with that. It talked about how they would dip the cucumber in boiling water, dip it in, take it out, and then they would baptize it, immerse it, uh, baptizo it uh, into the vinegar solution where it went in and it stayed. You see, we are baptizo into Christ. We are put into Christ in a permanent way so that a permanent and even an eternal union takes place between you and me and Jesus Christ at the moment we get saved. This is a spiritual transaction. We are spiritually put into Jesus Christ and at the same time Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in our lives. So the Bible says both sides of that are true. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. That is the glorious teaching of the doctrine of union with Christ. Being baptized in water does not accomplish that. Being baptized in water is a symbol of that. It's all it ever was, and all it will ever be. It is a symbol, an important symbol, yes, but still, still a symbol. The reality of it is spiritual. Galatians three twenty one tells us that we are the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Why sons? Because this gives us this union with Christ, gives us full inheritance rights, and that's a whole part of the story of Galatians 3. We can put this simply. There is no such thing as a second-class salvation. None. (laughs) That would have been a great place for an (laughs) amen. And there's no such thing as a second-class salvation. We are all the children of God through faith in Him. Being Adam, then, speaks of our common humanity under the curse. So if that's what it means to be in Christ, then what does it mean to be in Adam? This is our common humanity under the curse. Again, it's Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, And so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust." The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We bear the image of the man of dust. Adam was created out of dust. God took the dust of the earth and fashioned it and formed it into a man. What was woman created from? Woman was created out of man. Uh, Man was created out of dust. Woman was created out of man. And so we both bear that same image of the man of dust. All of us, all of humanity bears that image. Romans 5.18 then goes further. Therefore, it's through one man's offense. That one man was Adam. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. That's the curse and the fall. Remember, our text tonight said, As in Adam, all what? Die. That is the curse. As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act. The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteousness. Thank God for the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. A common result then being in Adam's death, eternal condemnation. Being in Adam is the ultimate of all dead-end roads. We'll have more on that in a moment. I lay these out for you tonight with these accompanying scriptures to get us to the point where we can discuss our identity, how we identify. And from that broadest of all things, then we can bring it down to three basic questions that we have to answer in order to understand the way that the Bible identifies us. I had a high school science teacher who was working on his master's degree in biology. And uh, it required him to do a lot of research. And because I was in his advanced biology class, he used us to do a lot of his research. You say, how can you use a bunch of high school students to get credit for a college course? Well, uh, he sent us out to collect leaves and insects. And a whole bunch of them. I mean a whole bunch of them. I would uh, guarantee you that just about all of them were in South Arkansas were gathered. We had a a pond that we had to do some research on and look at and all kinds of things. We did all that kind of stuff. But we got pretty good at identifying things. Scientifically, oh, there was that genus, all the way down to genus and species. You remember having to do that? It could be difficult. I remember a few of them. One of my favorites was the Lyrodendrum tulip ferra. Y'all all all know that one, don't you? The tulip tree. Up until the snow the other day, you could see them all over around our community in various places. Identify. Identification. We could look at something and say, well, it's a tree. But how do we identify? Well, you know what? We're not here to talk about science. We're here to talk about Scripture. How does God identify us? In Adam or in Christ? To see the implications of this, then, we ask three questions tonight. Uh, First of all, what what did I used to be? What what were we? What were we in Adam? Secondly, what are we now? What are we now? That's what we are in Christ. And then the third's obvious, of course. What are we going to be? (laughs) What are we going to be? And that's what we're going to be for all eternity, forever in Christ. So, first, then, tonight, what you used to be, you were identified in Adam. This is a shared biblical identity tonight of however nine billion people plus, or eight billion, nine, whatever it is, billion people there are on this planet. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And you He made alive, that's God, who made us alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Uh, What we used to be. This is what we were in Adam. And he tells us then that once we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were dead men walking. They ought to make a movie about that. Be a good title. Uh, We were dead men walking. We once walked according to the course of this world. Ask you a quick question. Have you ever tried to swim upstream in a creek or a river? then you know something. The current always wins. Have you ever been down to the ocean and got caught in an undertow and tried to swim back against the undertow, which they tell you to never do, to try to swim against that undertow that was pulling you out, and so you decide to try to swim against it to get back to shore? And you learn very quickly, the current always wins. That is the course of this world And when we were in Adam, we were dead in our trespasses and sins... ...and we were just going with the flow. We were going with the course of this world. But there was someone who was directing that course... ...and that is the prince of the power of the air... ...the spirit of our works and the sons of disobedience. That is the devil himself. Without even knowing it, then people all over this planet... ...who are in Adam are going along with the flow, the course of the world... And the direction of that course has been plotted out and determined by the devil. But that's even, there's even more. We also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. So we have that satanic problem, but we also have a very personal problem, and that is the desires of the flesh. Now God created our flesh with certain desires. We need to eat. We need to drink. We need to breathe. We need to breathe air. Uh, We need companionship. We have certain legitimate desires. That are the desires of the flesh. Uh, They are there. They are real. God made us with them. And He always created ways for these things to be legitimately fulfilled. The problem is, though, in our spiritual deadness, dead in our trespasses and sins, we tend to take those human desires then and turn them towards something that is not right and not legitimate and can be even dangerous and deadly. There's another problem to it, and that is the, not only the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, but also the desires of the flesh as inflamed by the mind. Sometimes when the desires of the flesh are inflamed by the mind, it's not that bad. I've, I've told you before about Thanksgiving dinner, when we've all eaten so much that we feel like we're about to pop and we are going there and maybe take a snooze a little bit, and when we wake up, we've got one thing on our mind. Apple pie. Now, our stomach is down there screaming, saying, No, 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 no. It's not the desires of the flesh. What is it? It's the minds. And, man, that pie's good. I think I'll get another piece. Uh, now, we can laugh at it. and I framed you see that in a very safe direction? But there's a lot of ways that the desires of the flesh are stirred up by the mind that ain't funny. We don't laugh at it. And they create an area maybe in our life where we battle even till today when we're saved. It's just, this is, what, this is what our common uh, problem, our common humanity, our identity then in Adam. This is where we were. Paul returned to this discussion later in verse 17 of chapter 4. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Futility means Empty having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorant. Because of the blindness of their heart. Blind. Who being past feeling, past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. If you're working in the workplace tonight, you see this five days a week. If you're going to school today, you're still a student, you see this five days a week. You see, it may be difficult for us to comprehend, but the description that we find in this passage of being in Adam is not necessarily of a person who is violent, not necessarily a person who commits atrocities. You see, in order in today's culture for somebody to be considered evil, they've got to be a mass murderer. They have to be a a child molester. They have to be something truly evil. Evil because we've moved the bar so far over and called so many things right that God calls wrong. I mean, we've got, if we're going to think about somebody who is evil, somebody who's an Adam, someone who is accursed, we're going to think about some guy way, way over there, way out there. I mean, they're really bad. Or maybe way over here, use the left side, maybe way, way out there. Yeah, I can tell those people are bad. They may not be sociopathic, they may not be mass murderers, they may appear to be well adjusted. Functional people because on a human level they are. But I want to tell you tonight of what is true of everyone who is in Adam but not in Christ. If they are only in Adam, they are lost because they are dead in trespasses and sins. They're walking in the course of this world. The course that's being plotted for them is by Satan. They're fulfilling the desires of the flesh. They're fulfilling the desires of the mind. They're by nature the children of wrath. Their mind is full of futility. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God by ignorance and blindness. They're past feeling any conviction about their lifestyle because they don't think they're doing anything wrong. They've given themselves over to lewdness, unspeakable things. They're greedy for uncleanness. Let me give you one more passage with a description quickly of what we were in in Adam. 1 Corinthians 6 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. These are three very important and significant passages on what it means to be in Adam. And everything in these passages are available and oftentimes are expressed in those who are in Adam. Theologically, we use a word called total depravity. And when you hear that word... We're not talking about how that people are as bad as they can be. That's not what total depravity means. When I read to you this list tonight, you may think of your own personal testimony and experience before you were saved. You say, well, I didn't do that. I mean, I was saved. I told you many times before, I, I was saved when I was seven years old. You know what that means? That means I've done a whole lot more sinning after I got saved than I ever did before. Yeah. Me and Brother Wade's in that condition. Nobody else wants to fess up tonight. I understand. I understand. Yeah, We all know that story. We do. If you were saved at an early age, that doesn't cast your salvation into doubt. It doesn't cause into it. But, but you might not have uh, had an experience. I mean, I, I've, I've told you, I, I went to church nine months before I was born. I mean, Mama carried me to the ladies' auxiliary meetings, for goodness sakes. We went to everything. We went to everything. And you know what I say about that? Thank you, Mama. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you that you cared enough about me to have me in church around God's people. It kept me out of a lot of mess. I'm not telling you today, and the Bible is not telling you that your personal experience or all of our experiences, it might have been that we experienced all of these things, but it does tell us that all of these things were possible. And if we didn't get into them, it was just by the grace of God. Because we're susceptible to it all. It's all in there. Remember, Jesus told us that all of this stuff comes out of the heart. It's all in us. It's all in us because of the fall. This is what we were in Adam. And what everyone around us that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior is in Adam. Identify. Let's spell it out. You were in Adam. That's what you were. But then I get to tell you the good news of what you are. And what you are is in Christ. You see, when you're saved, you're in Christ. How do I know that? Ephesians 2 and 8. Most of you can quote this by memory, and if you can't, you ought to be able to. So work on it. Ephesians 2 8. Call that homework. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, created in Christ Jesus. I just love the sound of those words. Created in Christ Jesus. We also know 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, and literally a new creation, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So that once we were identified in Adam, but now we are identified in Christ. We can summarize the biblical teaching on this with a simple expression. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, everything we lost in Adam, we gain in Christ. What we had lost in the fall, we gain then by our faith in Jesus Christ. And, I'm not done yet, and a whole lot more, amen, a whole lot more. Because when we are recreated in Jesus Christ, listen, we have more than even Adam and Eve could have had in their sinless state. Adam and Eve could never sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You and I can. God has given us everything that was lost in the fall. We gain back by faith in Jesus Christ. Now we are in Christ. And here then is where we get to ponder the great questions of humanity. Who am I? How did I get this identity What's it all about? Why am I here? Does life have meaning beyond itself? Is it just all about living and then you die? Can I change my identity? Can I become something else, something different? No animal ever ponders these great questions. Only us. I've got a Labrador Retriever. She's somewhat crazy. She's getting old, so she's not as crazy as she used to be. My Labrador Retriever, Jazzy, has never one moment in her life asked the question, Who am I? She's never asked, Why am I here? You know why she never asks the question, why am I here? Because she already knows the answer. Uh, You see, for Jazzy, she knows that, number one, I am here to to chase after whatever is thrown out there and bring it back. That's that's why she's here. That's how she... Expresses her life. I mean, I'll I'll bring you back whatever you throw. If you don't have something to throw, I will bring you something to throw, and I will sit there and bark annoyingly until you throw it, because this is what I do. I chase stuff down and bring it back. That's her first and primary reason for existence. Her second reason for existence is to bark at things that come through the yard and chase them. She doesn't mostly intend to do him harm unless it's a bird, but for the most part, if it's a person, she's just going to chase them down so she can swat them with her tail and hopes she gets her head scratched. The third reason that she exists is to chew up and destroy things that for reasons known only to her need chew it up and destroy it. You ever had a lab? You know exactly what I'm talking about. You see, they, these questions never come in their mind. They just live and do and do what they do. Uh, yes, they can be very affectionate. Yes, they can. They, they serve some very useful purposes. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not down and on. I'm just saying they don't ponder these great questions of life. People do. People do. And I'm glad tonight to tell you that God gives us some very clear and concise answers to these questions about our identity. And a great passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I've preached this passage to you before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Simon Peter says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So who am I in Christ? You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are His own special people. I love the King James translation of that, His own peculiar people. And we are peculiar sometimes. Notice that every single one of these is a noun of multitude. Isn't it interesting that when God begins to define our identity, who we are in Christ, He does not do it individually, but collectively. You see, part of the great, one of the great matters of crisis In our identity today, one of the great matters that is fueling this identity crisis that we see playing out in America today is that the world in general, and Americans I think specifically, have embraced an inherently selfish viewpoint of ourselves. An inherently selfish view. It's all about me, 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 me. You'd think we were tuning up for an opera. Me, 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 me. But isn't it interesting? God addresses our issue of identity collectively. Chosen generation. A royal priesthood, holy nation a special people not a priest not a citizen not an individual not a person all in the plural we can see why this happens this way in Romans chapter 12 in verse 1 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. But be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Isn't that a great statement? But I say to you, not to think of himself, every one of you, that not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. That is, have, have a good, solid way of considering this. Think rationally. Think carefully. Think soberly about this. So we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But instead, we think soberly. And he says, according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. That is, we bring this under the umbrella of our faith. What does our faith teach us then about ourselves? Not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think soberly, carefully, and to bring this then under the umbrella of our faith. What does our faith in Jesus Christ teach me about myself? Verse 4, as we have many members in one body, and all the members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ. And every one members one of another. Why did God describe us then as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation as his own special people. Why did he define us not individually but collectively? It is because when we were saved we became a part of Jesus Christ. We became a member of Paul would describe it, it goes so far as to say it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. We are members of Christ. We have been joined to Him. Each one of us created, yes, with individual talents, with individual abilities, individual things that we can do, but when we get saved, we are then placed into Christ, and that does that marvelous truth for us so that we become a part of Him but because we were a part of his body and all of these others in are a part of his body that means that we are also individually collected to one or connected to one another we are members of Christ yes but then we are also members of all of the others who are in Christ you see when he recreated us in Christ Jesus to become a new creature it wasn't just about us. Yes, it was about us. Yes, He saved me. He sure did. But then He immediately, spiritually, makes us a part of the body of Christ, which connects us to Him and connects us to each other, members of His body and members of one another. It is evident to me that a whole lot of the identity confusion running rampant in our culture today is driven then by the attempt to find a satanic, fleshly substitute for what is available to us only in Christ. It's just like the devil. He's always been providing counterfeits from the very beginning. And so he provides something to those who are in Adam that actually is only available to us in Christ. Because, you see, in Christ, we become a new creature. In Christ, our divisions and separations are taken away from us. In Christ, we all become one people. We are one body, one new humanity, one new man in Christ. We are spiritually one in Jesus Christ, connected to Him and vitally then connected to one another. That's what we are in Christ. But instead, today, we see all this other. See, what humanity needs is a new birth. But today, they're offered a gender transition. Let me tell you something tonight. This is not something isolated in a few small places. This is something that is being pushed on our nation in a way that I would have never imagined possible. Is being pushed earlier and earlier and earlier for obvious reasons because the the sooner that they can get uh, children on uh, 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 the things that are going to help them to, as they say, transition, the earlier that it's done and the earlier before puberty hits that it does, then the less likely they are to show any symptoms of being anything of what they used to be. Gender transition. What people need is a new birth but instead of the new birth, you don't like who you are, well, we'll make you again. We've got the technology. That's not all we need because we need to be in the body of Christ. God did not create us to exist in isolation. God said it from the very beginning, the get-go back in Genesis. It's not good for man to be alone. He didn't create us to be in isolation. What we need then, what we're searching for, is that sense of oneness that God gives us through being a part of the body of Christ so that we are one with Christ and one with one another. But instead of that, we have this satanic substitute that divides humanity in every way it can imagine. Our nation had made a a lot of progress on matters of race, for example. But we're seeing that undone and dismantled right before our eyes. As more and more and more and more racial identity is being pushed so that we divide ourselves into racial camps and then surround ourselves with people who look like us. We see the same with gender, with ethnicity, with nationality, with sexual preferences, and a plethora of other things where people identify as a certain thing and then associate even with others who identify with them. And right here in Cabot Town, Cabot, Arkansas, we have kids who are identifying with animals who call themselves furries. It's happening right here in front of us. Yes, it's It's there. What is this? It's an effort then to find some sense of community, a place to belong. And the only way that that can happen in Adam is to find people who think like me and believe like me and talk like me and and affirm me and go along with everything I am. And so we are dividing ourselves into all of these little tight-knit clusters. They're everywhere all over our culture. God help us if we ever allow that kind of thing in the church because we are one body in Christ. God took the Jew and the Gentile, and remember that covers it all. That's it, the Jew and everybody who wasn't Jewish, and God brought them together. There was hostility before, but He said, now Jesus Christ has made peace. The devil's been trying to disturb that peace ever since, and God help us, He's done a good job. Christians don't always live in peace, but we ought to, and one day we will. We will live out the glorious reality for all eternity. Talk more about that in a minute. But, folks, this is where the church, in a broader sense, the kingdom of God comes into prominence. This is in our wheelhouse. People need to be something different than what they are. I know about that. You do too, amen? I need to belong. I know about that too. Then we see that this identity in Christ then manifests itself as we put on Christ, Ephesians 4.22, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. Be renewed in the spirit of mind and and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You've looked into one of those distorted mirrors at a carnival or fair or you've seen about them, read about them. Uh, that's for all of you older folks like me. You younger folks know about those programs that you can get where you take a selfie. You know, I've taken, I think, three selfies in my whole life. Uh, but you folks know about how to do that and making yourself into an avatar, a cartoon picture. You can make yourself look however you want to look. You can uh, make yourself uh, skinnier or, or or bigger or taller. I mean, you can just do that. But let me tell you something about either side of that equation. Whether it is a carnival mirror or whether it is an app that you use on your phone, all this is doing is giving you a distorted image of yourself. It's a distorted image. And no matter how your image might be manipulated by these false things, or no matter how, carnival, uh, how a carnival mirror might distort your reflection, you are still you. It doesn't change who you are. But Scripture declares us to be a new creation. And He tells us that we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is how? How does this work? I did not choose the image of the carnival mirror haphazardly. Notice this next passage. 2 Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in what? A mirror, the what? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, a carnival mirror has no power to change what you are. It gives you a distorted image of yourself, but you are still you but there is a mirror that we can look into, and that is the mirror by which we see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by looking in that mirror then, we are changed into that same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I'll give you a simple truth tonight. We become what we behold. It's right there. We beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are changed, transformed into that same image. We become what we behold. This is the core concept of idolatry. We imitate what we idolize. Idolatry has always happened when people deify their desires, which is why the national obsession with sexuality in America today is bulldozing the whole idea of the Bible of Jesus and the church. They have set this up as their ultimate idolatry. It is their idol of human sexuality, and there's nothing that they won't sacrifice on the altar. I would have thought that after all the work that we did to get Title IX passed, and I say we because it's passed in my lifetime that guaranteed women's sports, girls' sports, in high school athletics and college athletics, I would have thought with the incredible price that was paid by so many to get Title IX passed that that would be a cherished, cherished doctrine that we'd hold on to forever. We will protect women's sports against everything. I was wrong. I was wrong. Even that, apparently, is going to be sacrificed on the altar. That's still ongoing. We'll we'll see. You see, this is what happens. We first deify our desires. That's what idolatry is. And then we sacrifice whatever to the God that we've made. One preacher defined idolatry in this way, and I liked it. He said, Idolatry is the honoring of things as ultimate that are not ultimate. Ultimate. Well, that's a great, great definition. Idolatry is honoring things as ultimate that are not ultimate and which therefore reshape us after their own image. Idolatry, you see, is the carnival mirror. But we elevate it to a greater degree when we begin to worship the image that we see the distorted image and then that gives it the ability to make us into a distorted image the carnival mirror tonight is primarily what we see on the online world pornography shows us a distorted view of human sexuality social media shows a distorted view of human happiness back when I was on Facebook I looked in vain for some Body who was gonna put a picture of their family? This is our family photo on vacation. I don't want to see the one when you're a picture of you all standing out there on the beach smiling. It looks so nice. Everybody looks so good, hair's all. You know what I want a picture of? I want a picture of the car on the way over. Nobody ever puts that picture on. The kids are all squalling, you know you know how I don't have to go on. Social media shows a distorted view of human happiness. Advertising gives us a distorted view of our body image. Science gives us a distorted view of humanity. It goes on and on and on and on and on. It's the negative side. But there's also a positive side. That's what Paul talks about here, that wonderful passage in 1 Peter Remember, He told us who we are, but He also told us why we are. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God has created us to worship he has fashioned us for His praise. And through this marvelous work of recreating us in Jesus Christ, then He has fashioned us into the place where we can proclaim His praises in worship. The great thing about worship, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. So what we were, how the Bible identifies us, it does so by talking about what we were. We were in Adam. It talks about what we are in Christ. As it shows us that we are these things and we are here then for worship. It defines us corporately. We are part of Christ and a part of Christ's people fashioned for praise. Praise then the question is what you will be in Christ. And I don't, I, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here tonight because if there's one thing most of us are pretty solid on, it's what we're going to be. We know how this thing turns out. But I do want to show you this one thing in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. And what great truth that is for us tonight. I can't answer all, all, uh, to all of the mysteries of heaven. I, I don't know. I can't tell you everything about what our glorified bodies are going to be like or what we're going to be like. We don't know. Paul tells us or John tells us that we, we, it's not yet revealed. But we know this. We'll be like Him. That's enough. That's enough. So that in Christ we have that promise that ultimately... He's going to make us like He is. We'll be fashioned, as Paul said, like unto His glorified body, His glorious body. We'll have a body that's fit for the heavens, not fit for the earth. I can't wait. I can't wait. I don't know about you, but I get tired of trying to remake this old body that I've got right now. I've been wrapped up and walking around in this old thing for 60-some-odd years now. I'm not ready to give it up yet, but I'll have to tell you, I look forward to the time where it's going to be changed like that. How about that for a change? And what's going to change us? I'm glad you asked because it's right here. See, I didn't make this up. Remember I told you we've become what we behold. We shall be like Jesus for, that word means because in that context, is 1 John 3, 2, 4, we shall see him as he is. We become what we behold. It's an amazing biblical principle as we see how that truth of our being in Christ plays out. It's not my purpose tonight to to bring this to you and it was not my purpose to bring these things to the classes that I taught yesterday. Uh, So that we could go out in the world and uh, argue with everybody we see that's struggling with their identity. And those of you who work in the medical profession and those of you who work in the mental health profession know just what a challenge that's going to be because I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of people who are already, I mean, just exactly what we see in this passage. Their hearts are blinded, their minds are full of futility. They have been claimed by the darkness and they are deep into it. And I wish I could tell you that I, we had the, we were going to call a lot of them out. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's not my purpose tonight in giving you this information to send you out uh, to fight or to argue with all those people and, and, and try to change them. I give you this tonight so that you can first of all help yourselves and then help your children and your grandchildren so that they're not the ones who end up getting caught up in all this stuff and find themselves then caught in a current that has them far from shore, so far, that it doesn't seem like they'll ever get back. I'm seeing too many of our good godly young kids that we've raised in church that are getting caught up in this There's going to be a lot more unless we recognize what we're up against. So I wanted to say this plainly, and I want to affirm it again. And I want to put it up here so that all those of you at home that are watching can see it, and anybody who tunes in to watch it at any time in the future can see it. What is going on in our culture today with all of this identity confusion and all of the trappings of it and everything that goes along with it is nothing more than a satanically designed substitute for the new birth. And creating then a sense of belonging that is a myth, it is a substitute, but it is really a mythical substitute for the belonging that God offers us by being in Christ Jesus. If you're in Adam tonight, the devil has one purpose, to blind you to the truth of Jesus Christ and bind you in Adam for all eternity, because in Adam all die. But I'm here to tell you tonight, in Christ all can be made alive. We are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You may find yourself talking to someone who says, well, I tried that and it didn't work for me. You may be one of those people watching from home. You may be sitting out there tonight, well, I've already tried this. I'm still struggling. I, I don't know what's going on here. You know, a, a, a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, get a false message they get a false concept of what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they, they try to uh, mouth a prayer or, or something without understanding that it, approaching God means that we repent of our sins and we believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died for my sins, for my sins, for my sins. According to the scripture, and that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And I can assure you, if you believe from the heart that form of doctrine that was given to you, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then everything that God says about those who are in Christ will be of you. I'm not offering you something that would happen that would cause you to never again struggle with sin. That's not what it is. Though we are in Christ, (laughs) we still deal with this body that has borne the image of the earthy. And it still does. But the image of the earthy. Now is wrapped up in a new image. I am in Christ Jesus. or you? I hope you are. If you're not. This would be a great time to make that decision. Let's stand together please.